This episode is sponsored by independent Swiss luxury watchmaker Ulysse Nardon. Ulysse Nardon has continuously reset the boundaries of watch engineering and design thanks to its long-established technical excellence and its unconventional approach to watchmaking. To find out more, visit ulysse-nardon.com. That's U-L-Y-S-S-E-N-A-R-D-I-N.com. Ulysse Nardon. You're listening to The Luxury Item, the podcast on the business of luxury and the people and companies that are shaping the future of the luxury industry. Here's your host, Scott Kerr. Switzerland's watch industry recorded a bumper year in 2022, and so far this year, continuing economic headwinds have not blown it off course. One of the most impactful international retailers that has been the home to a selection of the world's finest Swiss luxury timepieces is Watches of Switzerland. The Watches of Switzerland group is the UK's largest luxury watch retailer, operating over 193 showrooms across the UK, US, and Europe, including 80 monobrand boutiques on behalf of brands like Rolex, Breitling, Omega, Audemars Piguet, Tag Heuer, and others, as well as its e-commerce presence. Watches of Switzerland went public on the London Stock Exchange in 2019. My guest on the luxury item is David Hurley, Deputy CEO of Watches of Switzerland Group. He also serves as President of Watches of Switzerland Group North America. Since joining the company in 2015, Hurley has established the Watches of Switzerland Group as the dominating leader in the U.S. market. Under Hurley's stewardship, the brand acquired Mayer's Jewelers in 2017 and went on to open its first Watches of Switzerland U.S. flagship in Soho, New York in 2018. In the U.S., the group now operates seven multi-brand boutiques, 13 monobrand showrooms, 12 Mayer's locations, and three Betteridge doors with the plans of continued expansion. Welcome to the luxury item, David. Thank you, Scott. Great to be here. Thank you so much for joining me. It's really been an interesting few years for Swiss watchmakers. The Swiss watch industry earned more than ever before in 2022. Global demand for Swiss luxury timepieces spiked during the pandemic and has continued to steamroll despite economic headwinds. The first five months of this year is still trending up overall. Some of the CEOs of the the Swiss watch brands that you partner with At one point, we're seeing the watch sector slow down after this unprecedented boom, but they were still cautiously optimistic. So what about you? Well, I'm always a glass half half full person, Scott. Uh, I'm actually very fortunate in terms of when I came into the industry. Um, I I came in in kind of uh, late 2015 and was working on business development, and and we only came into the U.S. One of the kind of deals I was working on with the acquisition of Mayors in October of 17, and then we took over the retailing in the win in November of 17. And it was kind of be good or be lucky. At the time that we came in, it seemed like the businesses that we acquired, sales went up 10 or 15% almost the day that we acquired them. And that was nothing to do with us. That was you know, the positivity in the economy at the time. And and since then, you, you're right in saying that the Swiss uh, uh, watch market in the US has gone from strength to strength, uh, now becoming the biggest market in, in the world. And uh, maybe there was a post-COVID benefit to that as well. Um, and, you know, that growth has been pretty exponential. You know, for us as a business, we went from 
you know, 120 million in sales in our first year to over 700 uh, in uh, million uh, dollars in our last reported year. And a lot of our brands have been growing 50, 60, 100% year on year. And that was bound to slow down to a more normal pace of growth at some point in time. And I think we're starting to, to see that now. I, I, there's definitely a little bit more nervousness out there. And of course, people hear different things when you say slow down. Sometimes people say slow down and you think Wait, that means the market is going backwards. And that's not necessarily the case, but it is growing slower than it was, but off a very, very strong year on year and two year numbers. When we look at, um, you know, we're, we're originally a, a UK based business. And when we look at the UK, we kind of compared a lot of things, UK versus US when we came into the market. Um, and one of those things that we compared is just kind of the sales per capita and, and started to compare it, you know, timepieces to other luxury categories. And so, you know, we look at something like uh, hard luxury accessories, you know, so handbags, et cetera. And, you know, the US is kind of six times the size of the, uh, or, of the UK market. And luxury jewelry, it's five times the size. And for luxury watches, it's somewhere between two and a half to three times the size. So we're still pretty bullish that the that the um, that the market here is going to continue to grow. Uh, but that's dependent on a number of things. I mean, first of all, the economy here is it still continues to be quite strong, certainly stronger than our home market in the UK. It's dependent upon the brands continuing to invest in this market, and I think they are. And they're invested in a distant way. And it's dependent upon retailers like us continuing to invest and grow. And again, when we look at other luxury categories here and look at the, you know, the groups like LVMH and, and Caring, they're still investing in a big way in the market. But the kind of rampant demand that was there and maybe some of the hype that was around timepieces, that just can't last forever. And you've got to continue to invest in sustainable growth. Uh, and that's something that uh, we certainly believe in. And that's kind of been a characteristic of what we've done both in our UK and US markets. So overall, we're optimistic. But yes, certainly this year, I would see a slower rate of growth in the US market. And judging by the revenues alone, everything seems rosy. But at the same time, volumes have been declining. Exported watches from Switzerland went from about 28 million in 2015 to close to 16 million last year. That's about half the volume. What do you attribute to that kind of volume loss? Well, I think, you know, the, the Apple watches is, uh, and smart watches in general are, are definitely a component of that. Uh, and I think it's hard for the Swiss watch industry to compete against that kind of technology at that price point. You know, there's obviously um, Swiss watch brands that have tried to go in and do smart watches, and some of them are doing it well, but you're talking about you know, the investment in technology is huge. And then the, you know, the ability to be able to link to the iPhone is such a huge thing. But I'm actually, I, I see the the Apple Watch as a really positive thing uh, and smart watches in general. Um, I'd much prefer to have some wearing an Apple Watch on the, on the wrist than, uh, than no watch at all. And I think, you know, Scott, what do you have? Do you have an iPhone? Do you have a, a Samsung? What, what, what do you have as a phone? iPhone. iPhone. Well, look, you know, I've got an iPhone as well. I've got the latest version of. I still have to charge it twice a day. Um, I've bought the Apple Watches as well, just like everybody else. There's a new iteration out every year, and they become redundant pretty quickly. And I think 
people more and more so are appreciating, you know, buying, uh, you know, predominantly Swiss timepieces and something that can last uh, a lifetime. And at the same time, they can wear a smartwatch or a Fitbit or the Aura Ring or whatever it is, basically. So, you know, you've got you've got two wrists, basically. So you can have one on either uh, on either wrist. I don't know that the you know the kind of volume at the lower price points will ever come back. But you know, you've got other companies that are proving that they can, if they do something innovative, uh, then they will generate huge demand and huge volume. And if you look at what uh, Swatch did in their collaboration with Omega and the excitement around that, you know, with huge queues outside the the stores, and that was a a boost not only for you know, obviously for Swatch in itself. And, and you know, that they, they were a bit of a, a game changer at the point in time, just like the uh, um, just like the Apple Watch. Right. Uh, but actually had a positive boost to our watches as well. We were, you know, we saw, um, I mean, Omega is a very strong brand for us anyway, but we saw uh, stronger sales in the, in the Speedmaster uh, immediately after the launch of that watch. And I think it was, that was a, a great opportunity to excite people about Swiss timepieces at, at a different price point. But whether the volumes are ever going to get back in, in, in those areas, I don't know. I think uh, um, this, you know, the Swiss watch industry, and I've only been in it for a short time, but they've gone through other crises and they continue to pivot uh, all the time. But I think you know the, uh, they're focusing more on higher price points. And for us as a group, in particular in the US, in the main, we're kind of focusing on kind of a a thousand dollars and above, which is already a significant sum of money to spend on a on a timepiece. You know, one of the hottest topics in the industry over the last two or three years has been the scarcity of some luxury watch models, which were selling at way over retail prices on the secondary market and huge waiting lists. You know, an oversupply of others, which are being discounted on the gray market. With the seismic shift in selling watches since the pandemic, what do you think is the biggest challenge facing retailers today? Yeah, I mean, first of all, just on the uh, on the the watches, the luxury watch models selling way over price. Obviously, there's been a little bit of a drop on that for what were the the hottest models, uh, Scott, and 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 I think that's a really positive thing. Uh, I think some of the prices were just going way out of of sync when you're having to pay three, four times over retail for certain models. I think it starts to become a bit of almost emperor's new clothes, if that makes sense. I'm not going to pay that much for that. That's just kind of crazy. And I don't know at the very, very top end of those prices whether they were real uh, or not. I mean, we have a a significant uh, vintage, but also pre-owned business and we do well, but uh, we kind of shied away from some of the, you know, those models that were just completely crazy. And I think probably, uh, you know, encouraging people in some ways as well to, invest in timepieces maybe for a different reason because they could get a quick profit flipping the watch etc so um the fact that that's softened a little bit is i think generally a good thing we still see uh um you know it hasn't that dip in those secondary prices hasn't affected the demand for any of uh of uh, the timepieces that, that we have in terms of, uh, and, and you know, some of you know, maybe there is obviously other brands that maybe have been oversupplied or on the grey market, but I, but I do think that the majority of the watch brands over the last three to four years have done a very good job in in controlling that and reducing 
amount of timepieces that end up on the grey market or just closing down those doors that uh, that maybe were um, uh, fulfilling the grey market. So that can only uh, uh, be a, a good thing. In terms of the you know kind of seismic shifts in selling watches since the pandemic, I mean some of it was was happening before the pandemic. When you look at the kind of the super high demand uh, brands. Um, you know, every year, uh, I would say the majority of retailers were probably selling more than they were receiving on an annual basis and, and then suddenly ended up in a scenario where there was next to nothing actually physically in stock in, in the stores. And that certainly has created some frustration on, on the part of the clients and understandably so. I think, you know, some of the brands, you know, Rolex, for example, have been, they rarely make public statements, but they've been clear that, you know, scarcity is not a strategy, uh, but, they, you know, they can only make so many timepieces to a certain level of, of quality. And so, you know, one of the major changes that, you know, we want to do as a company, and I think a lot of other retailers is, um, is you know, obviously make sure we treat every client with respect, uh, try and, and manage and, and ease that frustration on on the part of, uh, of clients. And, you um, and get back to them on a regular basis and, and kind of keep that dream alive that they can get uh, the timepiece that they're looking for, which, you know, you know, we're in a wonderful position. We get to make a lot of people happy uh, on a daily and on a weekly basis. We can't make everybody happy, but, you know, we try and, for want of a better term, Scott, kind of share the love and, uh, you know, and make sure that, you know, we're not selling and demand time pieces to, to one client we're trying to you know sell them to as many as possible uh we're, we're, we're we have our own internal targets to make sure we're selling to new clients as well that haven't uh, haven't purchased with us yet for those some of those high demand time pieces so that's that's a part of the business that's possibly changed where uh for a certain percentage of the business in the past you had great salespeople, and now you really need good customer service people people that take these requests very seriously get back to the clients on a on a timely basis and, and treat every one of these uh, requests with a, a lot of respect so that's one significant uh, change that's happened you know some of it uh, even uh, pre-covid as well i think the other major changes that that are happening are just um uh, things that are happening in every luxury category or across just in dealing with consumers i mean there's the luxury of time with all of these kind of productivity tools and the ability to do Zoom calls and Teams calls, and uh, you know you've got your iPhone and it's yeah. uh, it's it's you know the, I remember the original pitch from Steve Jobs of you know well it's your phone and it's your computer and it's everything in one device, yet we still seem to be struggling to get things done <laughs> on a daily basis, and so I I think everybody including consumers want quicker answers, more instantaneous answers. And, um, you know, I, I, a huge amount of the people that come into our boutiques now, having come into the boutique uh, afterwards, a lot of the communication is via text and WhatsApp uh, versus uh, uh, phone calls. And, and it's really the, the client that determines how, what that interaction is. And so there's an expectation of a faster turnaround uh, in, um, in communication and getting back to people than there possibly was two, three years ago. Um, so the luxury of time, I think that's really important to make sure that that when people come in and after they've determined that they want to purchase a timepiece, that you just make the process as seamless uh, as possible. So that's 
that's probably the you know kind of two major uh, changes uh, that are there. I mean, I think also you know just in you know in in terms of how you advertise and how you market stuff today as well. I think there's you know significant changes there again based on human behavior. I've got a friend that works for um, uh, Microsoft uh, Bing, and he was telling me over the weekend that now the the attention span of a human is now officially less than a, a goldfish. Goldfish. <laughs> that it's, but yeah, there's something like that. It's uh, they they track it using Instagram and TikTok and just how quickly people uh, swipe through stuff. And the average uh, uh, viewing time is something like nine seconds or eight seconds. So you know, capturing people's imagination with marketing and and editing and changing that. So you know maybe sometimes the traditional billboards don't work and so that's a you know another part that's kind of uh, uh changing you've you've got to change and be where where the consumers are and right. so you know maybe that was instagram at some point in time it'll be tiktok as well and just capturing people's uh imagination uh you you've got to constantly come up with innovative ways to market and to uh and to reach out to clients so you joined the company in 2015, and last year you were promoted to deputy CEO of Watches of Switzerland Group, and you also serve as president of Watches of Switzerland Group North America. You were appointed on the heels of Watches of Switzerland releasing a five-year plan for expansion. Can you share some of the key strategic elements of that long-term plan? Look, I, I've, I've been very fortunate in, in my career in, um, in Watches of Switzerland you know, first couple of years is kind of responsible for business development. In fact, the first year, kind of first full year, every deal I worked on, Scott, fell apart. So at the end of the first year, I, I'd really accomplished the square root of nothing. Hmm. Uh, and then from there, but, you know, it's just uh, sometimes these deals and these acquisitions don't come off and it's the effort that you put in. The second year, um, we came into the U.S. market with the two acquisitions I talked about, mayors and taking over the retail in the win. And we signed for two locations in Hudson Yards and Soho that became a, a really great success. So I was uh, delighted to be uh, appointed as a, as a deputy CEO. And, and let me explain some of the reasoning behind the, the five-year plan in the first place. You know, we'd gone public uh, a couple of years before that. At the time, we'd really just entered the U.S. market and in some ways that was being looked upon as a um, as a little bit of a risk at the time you know there's plenty of uk companies that have come over here in different segments uh, and haven't made a success of it in in the us and one of those companies is this big supermarket chain in the uk called tesco's and they came over to the us with this concept called fresh and easy and when right. they said they were when they said they were going out of exiting the us and they wrote off a couple of billion, their share price actually went up. And then you've got people like Best Buy and other people that have gone to uh, uh, the UK and haven't made a success of it either because they're strong local retailers. Um, so that was probably the first question was, could we come to the US and, and, and make it a success? And, you know, as I said, whether it's, you know, some elements of what we did, plus an element of luck, plus the timing of when we entered the market, which sometimes is just outside of your control, that became a success in terms of the acquisitions we took over. Then the next thing was, you know, well, can you open up stores, new stores in a new market like New York that's very competitive and turn those into success? And unfortunately, Hudson Yards and Soho, they've been a fantastic success. Not on day one; these things take time. But uh, 
but they've, they've really been, um, were delighted with how they performed. And then the next question was, okay, well, how quickly and uh, how big can you grow the business both in, in the UK, the US, and, and, and where else can you grow? So that was the thinking behind the, um, going out to the stock market and we're on the, the UK stock market with, um, with the five-year plan. I mean, you know, the, the kind of top line strategies, you know, relatively simple. I mean, number one, sell more effectively, Scott, you know, kind of grow revenue, profit, and, and the return on capital they employed because luxury is a very capital-intensive uh, business. Mm-hmm. And so that paid back is, is incredibly important. And you can't grow the business without it. And stores get tired very, very quickly. I think one of the great things that um, our CEO, uh, uh, Brian Duffy, did when he came in in 2014, at the time we were owned by a private equity company, was he kind of changed the strategy immediately and said, you've got to invest if you want to grow the business. And, and that's what they did, started to invest in, in the UK showroom. So... You know, we want to grow revenue and, and profit and, and the return on, on the capital employed. So that's that's just the kind of key financial metrics. We want to continue to enhance our, our brand partnerships and make them stronger and stronger. I mean, to be clear, Scott, we are, uh, you know, we're, you know, we are dependent on our brands, basically. You know, we're kind of, we've often described ourselves as like the Sephora of watch brands. So, you know, we, we, we have to, continue to build those strong uh, relationships and and that's highly important uh, the, the brands have to be represented appropriately uh, their demands get higher and higher as the business gets more productive as well uh, as are ours they want to be represented appropriately um client experience i think just becomes more and more important on a, on a, a daily basis that was a significant part of the lrp as well um We've been fortunate with a with a few things in in terms of uh, um, we had a, a benefit a, a number of years ago for a point of time when when Brexit was originally um, uh, kind of uh, voted for uh, the UK currency dropped and suddenly we we became the cheapest place in the world to buy luxury timepieces and right. that had a significant benefit to our business and then as you said over the last two or three years you know. Um, uh, Swiss watches, I think, around the world have become, uh, uh, you know, whether it was hype or, or great marketing or the investment of retailers and the brands itself, you know, have continued to grow. What we've always done is, uh, you know, we want to have sustainable, you know, that kind of growth is just not going to last unless you invest. So investing in in the client experience. And, and so we have this um, uh kind of ongoing project in our business called Xenia. Xenia is the Greek word for hospitality. And it's about continuously trying to improve uh, the client experience um, because people have choices in terms of where, obviously, where where they can shop. And, and it just makes a huge difference. That follow-up, you know, these, you know, as we kind of, as I mentioned earlier, you know, we kind of retail in timepieces from, you know, $1,000 up to, you know, well over a million. We don't sell that many over a million on a daily basis or even on a weekly basis. Uh, but it's still a considerable sum of money and you want to treat people appropriately. And we can always improve uh, that client experience and, and the ability to surprise and delight. And uh, so that's a major part of what we've been doing. And then just continue to do in, impactful marketing. We've done, uh, particularly in the US, a lot of... Um, maybe slightly unusual marketing for 
a, uh, a multi-brand watch retailer. We have our own head of uh, creative uh, in-house. We do a lot of our own uh, in-house creative uh, in collaboration with the brands because sometimes uh, the brand uh, marketing that we get given, that we put on social media, that we use to advertise has already been seen and sometimes has limited impact on our social channels. So we're trying to do more and more uh, unique marketing ourselves. And, you know, uh, we want to kind of continue to leverage best in class operations. So we've got scale and size. And so we've been investing in that as well. The um, And then the ESG and just uh, has become a, a bigger area for every business. Uh, something that I think everybody has to be conscious of. And we have a, our own internal head of ESG. So, you know, what does that all mean? We're kind of two years into our LRP. Well, from a, from a sales and profitability basis, the investments that we've made, acquisitions, all of the investments that we've done in improving the customer experience and marketing, we're kind of two years into our five-year plan. And effectively, we were saying we were going to grow at a rate of circa 20% a year each year. And we're a year ahead of that plan. So we're mm. two years in and effectively a year ahead of that plan. And so we're delighted with that performance. And as we kind of, uh, as I, I mentioned earlier, when we discussed at the start about a, a form of a slowdown, we don't think we're going to be growing potentially at that rate this year, probably closer to, you know, uh, kind of 10, 11%. We wait and see we're very early into our, our fiscal year. Uh, but what we are going to be doing later on this year is we're going to be updating that five-year plan. And so we'll we'll add an extra two years onto that plan, basically, and then have another uh, five-year uh, forecast. I can't tell you what that's going to look like for the moment. We, we we're in the midst of that. In the, in the prior plan, we'd uh, you know kind of announced different levels of growth for the UK, uh, kind of high single digits uh, through to... Uh, the U.S. growing at a rate of 25 to 30% a year, and also we've entered the European market. So very pleased with the performance so far. We're two years in, but given that we're so far ahead, um, uh, it's time for us to, to update that plan. How, how does, you know, speaking of the U.K., how does the U.K. compare to other markets when it comes to demand for luxury timepieces? I was reading somewhere that the luxury watch spending per capita in the U.K. is about three times greater than the U.S., Exactly, exactly, and that's uh, uh, and thanks, Scott. That's it. That's a stat we use all the time uh, to promote uh, the UK market. We we believe that the the UK market is is, uh, and we would contend. Uh, certainly, my CEO would contend that it's it's probably the strongest and healthiest watch market uh, in the world. And you know, we think that's down for a number of reasons. And and if you look at the growth, even in the last year to two years, Scott, that's been without major tourism. You know, and London obviously is a major tourist hub, but uh, uh, that business was gone for a period of time, obviously, uh, during COVID. And in, and the business continued to grow uh, during that time period outside of the lockdowns. And um, uh, there is no tax-free anymore in the, in the UK, yet the market continues to, to grow well. So it's, it's a, a concentrated uh, domestic market. Um, and we believe there's a number of reasons for that. I mean, sometimes it helps if there's a clear market leader in terms of uh, keeping those standards up to a certain level. And there's no doubt that, you know, our group is the market leader there. 
but there is also you know everybody else uh, within that market is investing so whether it's um uh, selfridges uh, with their distribution there so they're uh, one of the major department stores in the uk harrods who uh, everybody knows uh, they've invested and there's a lot of very strong independents in the uk as well so you know th that investment has been going on for multiple years uh, certainly for the last uh, eight to ten years and that just helps to elevate the market uh, overall so um i think that's been part of the benefits uh here in the US, and maybe some of it was a little bit when we came into the to the US market as well, that probably surprised some people that we were coming in. Maybe some people were surprised that we got the support of brands, but I think you're seeing significant investment by by us, by other major groups, by a lot of the uh, independent uh, retailers out there who do a fantastic job, and and that just elevates the market at an overall level. If you even look at the New York as an example, Scott, we've, we've built two wonderful boutiques in Hudson Yards and in uh, Soho. Um, uh, Busher or Turno has renovated Time Machine. Bempe has expanded on Fifth Avenue. Uh, there's other businesses that have opened up either in meatpacking or um, or the, the monobrands that have been invested in. And I think the market as a whole has just grown. So I think um, we saw that first in in uh, in the UK, and and we believe that's one of the reasons why there's still significant potential in the US. We'll be right back after a quick break with more of my conversation with David Hurley. A pioneer in innovative technologies and the use of high-tech materials such as silicium. Ulysse Nardin is one of the few integrated watch manufacturers with the expertise to produce its own high-precision components and movements. In 2001, the brand changed the face of watchmaking by launching the Freak. Freak led a counter-revolution to traditional watchmaking and reshaped the art of horology. Today, Ulysse Nardin remains devoted to its quest for watchmaking perfection through four collections, Freak, Blast, Diver, and Marine. We're back with more from David Hurley. You know, Brian Duffy had said in an interview that the company set its sights on investing in the U.S. because it was hugely underdeveloped because of a lack of investment in retail. What did he mean by that? Was it there was no sort of dominant leadership of scale such as what you had in the U.K. market? Well, certainly, you know, when we when we came in and started looking at the market, it, it, it is a highly fragmented market in comparison to the U.K., but of course, it's a significantly bigger market. You see the same thing even with the department store groups here. I mean, Neiman Marcus didn't have a store here until uh, 2018 and then ended right. up closing it. Nordstrom, Nordstrom's opened up uh, only, you know, probably what, 2019, something like yeah. that in New York. And these are, these are names that are known across the U.S. but kind of grew from certain specific markets, this, you know. You know, everybody in, in Europe, and, you know, I'm Irish, everybody, and so we've got an affinity with the U.S. anyway. We've, uh, we've been immigrating here for hundreds of years, but the, uh, um, everybody knows the size and scale of the U.S., but until you have to travel around it, um, you really don't get it. I mean, it's just incredible. And so highly fragmented market, no market leader, and anybody who was there at the time obviously some great independent retailers but a lot of groups that hadn't been investing in stores hadn't really recovered from 
2008. So the watch retail was certainly underinvested in. And, um, and, you know, I think some of the mono brand expansion by some of the brands was a reaction to that at that point in time. So um, whereas other categories, uh, which were controlled directly by the brands like LVMH, Kerry, and which, you know, she and LV and LV and, and Dior, et cetera, had been building these huge palaces. So I think um, that was one of the reasons why we really focused in on that market. The, the differential that you mentioned, Scott, earlier in terms of the spend per capita on uh, timepieces and, and then, you know, the fact that there wasn't that differential um, when it came to uh, other luxury categories made us feel that there was a, a significant opportunity. Um, but of course, that opportunity, I mean, it was a calculated risk when you're building stores, you know, like Soho, which is 8,000 square feet. Uh, Hudson Yards, whatever, is six and a half thousand square feet. There are significant investments uh, to make, so you've really got to believe in in the potential. But we also looked at things like the number of watch agencies in Manhattan versus London, and there were significantly less watch agencies in in New York, and, and we just genuinely believed that there was that uh, um, that uh, ability to grow it. And we, you know, as you go around the U.S. now, you're continuing to see. Uh, the retailers, watch retailers in the U.S., uh, continue to invest in upgrading or expanding uh, their boutiques, and I, and you know we believe that that will allow the the whole market to grow. So that was really the kind of you know the the crux of us kind of coming over here, identifying the opportunity was that kind of looking at spend per capita, looking at the stores at the time, looking at the number of agencies that were out there. A lot of the stores were were pretty tired, um, and so um, you know I would say with you know even with the vast majority of the stores that we've uh, we've built here in the U.S. Scott, I would say uh, at the time you know even the two in New York they were you know there's significant risk large boutiques. Now I wish they were bigger. So mm. uh, so I think there's been a significant investment now by the retailers itself, and by the brands. Uh, I think the brands, and, and you see that um, in terms of the, the marketing spend, the resources that they're putting in on the, uh, in the, uh, the, the US market. Um, and I think for a period of time, that just, that wasn't happening. Um, and, uh, you know, I think the, the US gets luxury uh, better than anybody else, but there, there was definitely some kind of, maybe some translation between Switzerland and, and uh, the US that was that was missing or maybe it just wasn't the um, uh, the resources uh, and the marketing that was uh, put into the into the market and you see it now uh, even if you look at things like F1 um, in Miami and you see the investments that are made by the brands I mean obviously Rolex are always consistent in their investments but you still see brands like IWC, Tag Heuer, you're making significant investments into these markets. And uh, and that's the same for all watch brands. And so, you know, even if there's a slowdown for this next year, I think, you know, our, our, our belief is the US will continue to grow if people continue to, to invest uh, into the market. Um, and we see it in the other luxury categories, Kering and, uh, and LV, that I keep on bringing them up because you see their stores are going from 
5,000 to 10,000 to 15,000. And so um, big is definitely better. It's kind of a go big or go home strategy. Right. And um, and so, yeah, we still, uh, that was the reasoning behind, uh, I guess, Brian's uh, quote. When you did, you know, start gaining a foothold in the U.S., and you opened up the boutiques here in New York City and Hudson Yards and in Soho. And then you made these strategic acquisitions for a number of independent U.S. jewelers like Betteridge, Benbridge, Timeless Luxury, and Mayers. When you acquire these independent jewelers, how do they adapt to the watches of Switzerland's standards of design and client service? Well, you know, I mean, what, probably the most important thing that we're acquiring when we're acquiring these businesses is the actual the people that work within the business itself. And certainly um, with the first acquisition that we did, uh, the first strategic acquisition, which was Mayors uh, in Florida and Georgia, what that gave us was a fantastic team. Uh, the majority that are still in the business, certainly all of the management team are there, either in bigger roles or maybe um, in different roles, maybe that they, because as our size has grown, maybe they, were, they had, you know, three different roles that they're doing and now it's just one but you know that was great because you know it gave us a, a HR team in to support recruiting you know all of the store development other and just the retail expertise and the US is different to the UK in, in so many different ways uh, you know uh, the staff the client base it's not consistent so so it, acquiring the staff is probably the biggest thing so Really what we try to do when we have these strategic acquisitions like Timeless or Betteridge, we, we acquired one store from Benbridge in, in, uh, in Mall of Americas. You know, we want to try and keep all of the team if we can, learn, take the best of what they're doing uh, and then, you know, support them with our, with our systems, with our processes and with, you know, I guess the strength of our organization behind it. So if you take a look at, you know, we'll take the store for, Betteridge in Greenwich, as, a, as an example, it's a wonderful store, a great team. But, you know, we're going to be expanding that store. We've already taken on two and a half thousand square feet. We took it on without even knowing uh, what we were going to be putting in there. Uh, and we're going to be doing a multi-year um, you know, investment and renovation in that store. And we're going to keep the name Betteridge. Some of the stores were changing to Watches Switzerland, but we believe Betteridge has such a strong name in, in the Greenwich area. So it's it depends on store to store what you, what you want to to do, and that store is going to be very different. It's going to be primarily focused around jewelry because that's the base of the clientele and the expertise that they have. And you know, I, we're taking our time over the store design. The store itself is already really fantastic, so it's going to be more evolution than uh, revolution. But you know, there's quite a lot of change when we take over uh, these businesses that the the staff have to deal with. The first thing is just changing the suite of systems uh, and uh, you know whether it's point of sale or all of the other systems that they use and, and it doesn't matter whether our systems are better or worse it's still a significant change um, and so you want to make that as smooth as possible and yes we want to uh, integrate um, all of the teams uh, into our business and make them part of the uh, the overall um, business you know, I think, um, you know, for example, again, with, with Mayors, which is the longest one that uh, uh, we've acquired, they were very proud of being part of uh, of Mayors and rightly so on what they'd built. But now I think they're say, they would say they're proud of being Mayors, but they're part of the Watches of Switzerland group. And that can only be done over a period of time. 
you know, that we've got to be true to our word and what we've done. And we do, you know, we've done quite a lot of uh, different things with the, the businesses. You know, we've invested in the stores, um, invested in the brand relationships, grown the sales, you know, which means that the, the teams are are getting paid well. You know, it's great to be part of a business that's growing. Uh, and our size and scale as well means that people can move up through our, our business. You know, we have uh, uh, the gentleman that's uh, running our Betteridge, the, the three Betteridge stores today, started off in a store in Northern Ireland, working there while he was in college, mm. and then went to a couple of stores in, in uh, the UK mainland, then came over and ran Soho, and now is running three stores. Um, you know, our, our store director from uh, that work, works in Hudson Yards, Started off uh, uh, in the credit department in uh, in Mayors uh, a number of years ago. So, you know, our size and scale offers those opportunities uh, for people to be able to have real careers in in retail. Kind of that's a, a lot of the work that we have to do to try and bring people into the culture is about a listening and learning to what the business is today, and not just assuming that we know better because generally we don't. And then adding, you know, what our size and scale brings and, and then being true to our word in terms of backing up what we say we're going to do. Part of your long range plan is also to play offense in continental Europe. The company stated it wants the European market to contribute between five to eight percent of group revenue by fiscal year 26 through a mix of acquisitions and opening mono brand boutiques. Were the conditions similar in Europe as in the U.S. in terms of just underdevelopment? Yeah, we, we certainly believe so. We we think that the the market is um, uh, is is quite fragmented, and, and we think there is uh, opportunities to grow. It's it's funny that you bring up Europe. We just opened up our first uh, store in in Berlin today. I think a, a Tag Heuer boutique that opened up in Berlin, and we started off um, in the Scandinavian market because yeah. Why did we you do that? that it, yeah, we we kind of have a yeah, I guess Brian in particular, but. Uh, uh, I as well, we, we have a bit of a history uh, with uh, Scandinavia. We worked for Ralph Lauren. Uh, Brian was the uh, the president of Ralph Lauren in right. Europe. I, w- I wasn't. I, I was <laughs> down the rungs. Uh, but, you know, the, the Scandinavian business was a licensee business uh, when we took it over and we put a strong team in there. And it, it became as big a region as, um, you know, kind of, for Ralph Lauren is, you know, kind of UK and Ireland or the France Benelux region, et cetera. And so, you know, the, the, the money is there. The retail isn't always to the same level. And so, um, and the clients are there. So maybe they shop elsewhere. So, you know, our and the first stores that we opened up there is we opened up a couple of Breitling boutiques in, in Stockholm. Uh, we've opened up a, a mega boutique there as well. We've opened up a, a couple of boutiques in, in Copenhagen. And it's been a, it's been a really promising start, and and of course you learn as you go into these markets as well. Uh, one of the things that we've been uh, positively uh, surprised with in the uh, in in Stockholm is just the average price of uh, that we're selling for our mono brand boutiques is significantly higher than uh, than our UK or or US boutiques. So that's a really positive uh, surprise, and uh, it'll take us time. Uh, just like it did in the, in the US, but it, it's something that we're, we're determined to grow and we still see significant opportunity there uh, over the next few years. What do you look for when you analyze a market? 
I mean, there's, you know, first of all, you know, it, a lot of those, you know, the, the per capita numbers that you, Scott, that even you quoted, you know, is, is some of the starting points. We obviously look at the distribution that's already there. We take a look at the other luxury distribution that's in place. So, you know, you're not just looking at um, taking a look at the, the size of the watch market. You're taking a look at the, uh, at the size of the overall luxury market. Um, and then we compare and, and see whether it's underpotentialized versus the markets that we're in. Uh, and so that's really what helped identify those opportunities. Now, you know, at the start, the, the first point was, okay, let's take a look at Europe. Let's do the analysis. And then there was, you know, an in-depth analysis done by our team on every one of the markets, the distribution that's there, the sales per capita, and then just a review of the distribution in every country and the quality of it. And of course, there are some great retailers that are that are um, uh, working in these uh, countries. Uh, but we believe we can we can add to the overall market as well. And we've got a very strong team, uh, and we've got you know European-based people that have experience of working in Europe again because every one of these markets is so different. Scott, you know we. Uh, kind of group you know uh we refer to scandinavia as the scandinavia market but you know the you know denmark and uh and sweden are connected by a bridge you know from malmo to copenhagen right um but you know i, I don't know if you ever saw the program maybe uh, it was called the bridge i think there was a u.s uh equivalent it was kind of a murder um uh mystery but the, um, as a consequence of a, uh, you know, the, the kind of premise behind it was a, a body being found on the on the bridge, and the two countries having to work together, and just the differences between the two countries. You know, Sweden uh, and Denmark and, and Norway get lumped in together, but you know, the, each one of those markets are very, very different. I mean, just like you know, different parts of you know Florida and Georgia, etc. So you need the local expertise you need to learn these markets as well but we we really believe in the potential there uh, to continue to grow um uh, the european market through mono brands and and through the the right acquisitions i mean in terms of you know acquisitions we're we're always looking at potentials but of course you know it has to be right for the seller it has to be right for um for us as the buyer and you've got to factor in your, you know, ability to be able to execute and how many things can you do at one point in time. But we're still very optimistic uh, about the, the Europe market and think it's going to continue to grow. Watchers of Switzerland has been riding its growth on a multi-channel business model, which includes a combination of multi-brand showrooms, portfolio of monobrand boutiques, and, and e-commerce, of course. Your multi-brand showrooms represent many of the most sought-after brands on the market, Rolex, Patek Philippe, Audemars Piguet, Cartier, etc. Is there a common design theme in all your multi-brand stores that allows those big brand partners to express their individuality while still drawing the customer to browse through the store and making it a welcome experience? Well, yes. I mean, there there certainly is. I mean, you know, there there are certain common teams as 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 you come into our stores. I mean, you would generally find that if uh, if uh, you come into one of our multi brand stores, you know, Rolex just by uh, the nature of their demand and the size of the business would probably have the largest space. But we really try to give each one of the brands the opportunity to have its own branding and express itself within our stores. And then we have, you know, kind of control the overall uh, look and feel of it. Um, you know, in a, 
I think, you know, Soho, Scott, which you've been in, uh, obviously is, is kind of a perfect example mm-hmm. of that, where you've got, you know, every one of the, you know, every one of the major brands that are there, as you mentioned, Rolex, Patek, Cartier, Ulysses, Nardan, uh, every one of them have kind of branded spaces. And so they're able to kind of display uh, their timepieces within that. But then, you know, the building itself is, is, is spectacular. And so the surrounding areas, uh, bar that we have downstairs, the kind of lounging areas that that we have for people to be able to sit down, and and the overall client experience is what we bring to the to the table. And I think, but we are constantly taking a look for each store and looking to tweak the design. I mean, the the Soho store, just by its very nature and the location where it is. Um, it's going to be very different. The, the battery store design will be very, very different um, because there'll be maybe more of a focus on jewellery because it's a larger part of the business. It's a different area. The building's very different. Um, and so that will be that will be a, a different design. But it, a consistency for some of our major brand partners that we will give over certain spaces and allow them to uh, to express their brand. And then there's just a you know a back and forth in terms of things like you know the kind of logistics of how many seating areas do we right. want, how many VIP areas do we want, uh, etc. Um, but I think you've constantly got to kind of change and relook at the store designs as you as you roll them out. It's easy to get in some kind of a cookie cutter version. So it's it's about kind of challenging our designers to come up with something different as well, rather than just getting a blank page and going, well, this brand goes here, this brand goes here. It can start to get uh, quite boring. The other thing with the store designs that, you know, we try to do as much as possible and, you know, and need to do more of is, you know, there are ever-changing stores because there are always brands that are coming in and going out based on performance or other factors. Uh, you know, we have pop-up areas in a lot of our stores where we can test brands or just, you know, test um, different, um, you know, an exhibition with one of our, of our brands. So uh, whether it's a, you know, first to market a watch that's just been released. We did one with uh, in Soho with the, um, uh, the UN freak. And so we're able to invite clients there. And then a week later we had, uh, uh, we opened up a, a new shop and shop for H Moser. So we had Edward Mail on who's the, the head of H. Moser and a uh, really great charismatic guy. And, you know, uh, you know, I can, I think the rise of these independent brands, and you know, that are becoming really material brands now, like H. Moser is just a wonderful thing to see a really great development to see over the last three to four years. Or, you know, I think the same night that we did one of those events, we had a, an event with Bulgari and Aventura. So, we, and, and it's getting in special pieces or doing special events with, uh, the clients having these pop-up areas makes a difference to the store as well. And then sometimes, you know, taking people out of the store and uh, taking over pop-up areas or restaurants and, and just trying to do something a little bit unique. Um, a couple of years, well, last summer and the summer prior to that, uh, we had the idea of um, uh, building out an Airstream and putting it in the Hamptons and retailing out there. And so it was just a fun activity uh, to do something slightly different, we had a we had a uh, um, a marketing campaign at the time called Anytime Anywhere, where we were kind of shooting different brands and in different scenes across the US, and just the idea of a a, a mobile store. 
seemed like a, a perfect idea at the time. And it was, it was really great fun. I think our clients really loved it. And mono brand boutiques are also an integral part of the strategy. Many of those partner brands on your roster that I mentioned earlier also have standalone boutiques with operations powered by watches of Switzerland. You know, there are obviously a number of advantages for luxury watch brands to have their own boutiques, smaller, and more intimate, and the customer is completely immersed in a single brand's core proposition without the distractions from, you know, surrounding competing brands. What is the advantage of having watches of Switzerland power the operations versus owning and operating their own boutiques? Probably the first advantage for some of the brands is we take on the responsibility for the lease and the staffing. So uh, <laughs> that would be, there's some financial advantages uh, and, and you know, it's obviously a, a certain amount of the, the capital as well. Uh, but, but seriously, I think uh, the some of the advantages are, number one, that, you know, our core competency is uh, is retailing. You know, we're not designing the brands. The brands do a wonderful job. They they have their point of view of, you know, the timepieces they design, what the brand stands for, uh, and then you know the majority of them. Though of course some of them run their their own uh, retail. Um, a lot of the retail is is run by specialists, and and that's what we are, and that's what we do. Um, so. Sometimes our scale can be of benefit. Some of the locations that we've opened up for mono brands as well, one of the issues is that they can be smaller, but then the rent can be quite high for a small space. Sometimes you don't get the best location. Some of these uh, mono brands that we've done in in Europe, in uh, in the US and, and in the UK are maybe two brands together or three brands together. So that allows for some economies of scale as well. You can still have that overall mono brand boutique experience for a particular brand, but you can share things like back of house. You've got a larger space, so there's so, some economies of scale in terms of the rent. Maybe there's uh, the fact that you can get a better space because you're now looking for a bigger space. Maybe you're looking for 2,000 square feet instead of 500 or 600 square feet. And, you know, I think, um, you know, for those brands that we've opened up, those mono brands we've built in UK, US, and Europe. I mean, they're certainly happy with the uh, the productivity that we've been uh, driving. And you know, we still, you know, we firmly believe in in multi brands. I think mono brands are complementary. You know, we want stores to be open and welcoming and friendly. And even with that, sometimes you know, multi brand stores even in itself can be intimidating. And then the mono brands can be another level of intimidation before you kind of cross the threshold and come in. We we like to have open door policies and just having the door open where we can some security basis that's just not possible. So I think it's kind of a it's a, a good mix between uh, between both. And so whether it's it's mono brands, multi brands or online, ultimately it's the client who chooses where they want to where they want to shop. You know, when somebody's coming into a Omega boutique or a, a Tag Heuer boutique, you know, obviously they're coming in specifically to look at that brand. But then people also appreciate with a, a multi-brand store, there's just that independence of choice, the ability to be able to take a look at a lot of different uh, timepieces and the ability to be able to compare and contrast. And then just the fact that you know, with a lot of the, the, the multi-brand stores that we have, we're changing the lineup up or we're having pop-up brands in there. We're testing new things. So there's always something new to show clients when we come in as well. Who owns the personal data from the mono brand stores? Is it you, the brand, or both? 
uh, the majority of it, uh, we are, you know, some of the deals are different, but the majority of the data is, is held with us. And what about the role of e-commerce in the watches of Switzerland, brick and mortar, heavy, multi-channel playbook? Well, I mean, the e-commerce is, you know, I mean, as everybody says, whether it's e-commerce or then people, you know, um, you know, looking at product uh, timepieces online and then shopping uh, in store, uh, it's hugely important. Um, you know, it's one of the things in the UK where, and this was before my time, the the UK business got into that very, very early. They've got effectively a $100 million business online uh, in the UK. And for uh, every one of the brands that we retail online, the online door is the biggest door that we have in our, in our network. So that, you know, that advertising and the marketing that we do online not only benefits the online sales, but in store as well. And so... Um, you know, we look at the re- the overall return on that advertising spend, and, and you know, it helps to drive people into stores. A huge amount of research is done online, uh, whether it's on our websites, on some of the blogs that are out there, and I think it's you know, particularly over the last yeah, five to six years, it's resulted in a sea change in, in business. I, I don't know whether um, wonderful brands like uh, you know M E N F or even a uh, H Moser you know, have benefited so much from online, from social media, from Instagram, et cetera. You know, 10 years ago, if you were launching a brand like that and you wanted to turn it into something meaningful, you know, people would said, well, you've got to go out and spend a huge amount of money on print advertising, on billboards, et cetera. So it's not just the the online websites itself. Social media is so important these days for, uh, for uh, uh, getting to the right clients. We continue to believe in, in, in online. We continue to believe that it's going to, uh, to grow, but it, it's part of the overall uh, ecosystem. Fiscal year 23 was a record year of revenue and profitability for watches of Switzerland, thanks to surging luxury watch demand. However, many feel the epic run on luxury goods is finally hitting a speed bump and aspirational shoppers in the U.S. will soon be forced to trim their spending. Are you concerned about softening demand in the U.S. for luxury watches, or do you think the top end of the market will keep things humming along? I think that there's certainly been a slowdown in the growth, Scott, over the, let's say, over the last seven to eight months, uh, there's been a, a form of a slowdown in the growth. But that just wasn't sustainable, the kind of levels of growth that were there. Uh, and I think it's it's down to a more sustainable level now. I'm not concerned on the, in the short to medium term in terms of um, uh, what's going to happen to the, uh, to the U.S. market. I think the fundamentals here of the the U.S. economy continue to be uh, strong. Inflation seems to be coming at least a, a little bit more uh, under control. The stock market, overall stock market, is is very strong here in the U.S., which you know obviously affects uh, people's uh, financials as well. And and I just think that the you know the watch category versus other luxury categories still has the ability to gain market share. You know, people are choosing. Uh, timepieces versus other uh, luxury categories, you know, uh, whether it's again, hard accessories or, or or jewelry or holidays, and so, you know, we we've just got to continue to invest in in the U.S. market, and I think over time it's going to continue to uh, to grow. We've got to stay the course, Scott. Yeah, and I, I think look, we're we're still. Um, uh, you know, of course, you you know, you want to continue to be growing at you know. 
the levels of that we have been, which have been incredible. And uh, but I, I still see this market continue to grow uh, over the next few years. And uh, and I think you know we're continuing to invest in renovating stores, in opening new stores, um, and we're going to continue to do that uh, over the next few years. I mean, we have store developments now going. You know, we're kind of with our partners because again, with just the your our ability to execute their ability to execute you know constraints in the supply chain we're now planning projects in in uh, calendar year 26 you know so we've got projects laid out through uh through 23 through 24 through 25 and we're, we're already even looking at 26. yeah we we plan to continue to grow and i, I think the the overall uh, watch market in the us will continue to grow and if there's a couple of bumps along the way, well, that's to be expected. But but over over the sustained period, we expect it to grow. And new consumer segments, including young people, women, and consumers outside of the U.S. and Europe, seem to be leading the charge of this massive upswing in the luxury watch market. We're already seeing big luxury watch brands like Audemars Piguet and Cartier and others embracing youth culture and new audiences with various targeted programs and campaigns. Have these new audiences and their priorities changed the way Watches of Switzerland does business? Yeah, of course it it, it changes it. I think we're seeing our our clientele continue to get younger, and some of our, our New York stores. You know, I'm I'm 49 today. I'd like to think I'm ageless, but I'm probably in there on the Saturday, and I'm by <laughs> by far, you know, uh, uh, one of the oldest people in in the store. Um, and, and that's great. I think that you know the um, uh, the younger clientele are interested in sustainability. They're interested in things that are going to last for a period of time. They're not just interested in those um, uh, luxury watch models that have, have are super scarce or super high demand. They're interested in horology as a category. They really are. They're interested in brands from, you know, uh, you know, from G-Shock through to the whole way through to Patek and, and every brand in between. And that's really fantastic to see the passion that they have for it. And I think, it's, you know, a combination of um, just, you know, uh, I guess, researching online, this interest in sustainability and things that, you know, with everything else so redundant, as we discussed, like iPhones and Apple Watches, everything being so redundant, something that lasts is is something that I think is becoming more and more important to people. And then you've got a lot of the, you know, the the online blogs, the Hedinkis of the world, um, uh, Watchinista, all of these uh, groups that I think have, you know, have serviced that interest as well and have done a great job. So I think that's in particular in the, in the US and growing in the other markets. And of course, that's something that uh, each one of the brands wants to uh, uh, tap into as well. And I think that's one of the great things that, um, you know, with, with the multi-brand stores that we have is that we do want to have those accessible price points as well. We're not selling everything at 50,000 or 100,000. Um, and, you know, we want to have it at, at lower price points and keep some of those brands in the store to make sure that we are able to cater to some of those younger consumers. Though some of those younger consumers are also interested in the real and are purchasing the luxury high-end uh, timepieces. So what are some of the more interesting consumer trends that you're seeing from all the customer purchasing data that you've been gathering? Well, you know, we we monitor 
uh, trends on everything from size of cases, watch cases to colors, etc. I think you know the the biggest one that I've seen, at least based on the, the client data that we're seeing, is just the rise of some of the independent brands, which I think is is fantastic. Yeah. The the interest in in brands like MBNF, Hmoser, Chapek, which is a brand we don't retail today, but you know, Speak Marine, Armand Strom is a brand that we retail that I really love and really believe in, and people are really interested in these timepieces, and I think. You know, the major watch brands do a great job, but I think that ability, for example, I said that for H. Moser and Edward, who you uh, um, who you interviewed on your podcast, um, the ability to meet the person that's behind the brand or the person that designed the timepiece, I mean, that's a really fantastic thing. And I think, uh, you know, people like Edward, Max Busser, I mean, they get treated like rock stars uh, by the watch community. And so, uh, you know, I, I think that's really wonderful to see with the, these brands that, you know, uh, not those two in particular, but other independent brands over the course of the last few years that, you know, now their biggest issue is can we make enough timepieces or we don't have enough watchmakers? Right. Well, well, that's a, a fantastic problem in comparison to maybe, you know, some of the challenges that they had in the past in terms of just being able to get the, their timepieces into stores or to be able to... Uh, to sell them to the final consumer. It's just a wonderful thing uh, to see. Yeah. Do you think your smaller independent Swiss luxury brands and all the awareness that they've gained, do you think a lot of it had to do with the rampant supply shortages of the big four brands? So they turned their attention to other brands? I think that was only a small component uh, of it. I think genuinely, I think the social media, Instagram, the ability to be able to, you know, for these watches to get seen by so many people and shared across social media. I think that's made a big, big difference, first of all. I think some of the marketing that gets done by some of the, uh, these brands, uh, you know, even some of the marketing that, that uh, you know, H. Moser did back in the day was real guerrilla marketing. Yeah. But they, they'll take, but they all, and, and it's, it's kind of changed over time, but they still do some really interesting collaborations, which for the, you know, the watch, you know, there's, um, uh, you know, um, you know, watches. Well, I think with a, a collaboration with the Armory, um, they did. I want to say, was it Undefeated? Was that the 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 brand that they did a, a timepiece with as well? Um, a kind of a streetwear brand, and I think that's that's great. You know, I think that 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 really helps drive interest because it, it's something a little bit different. So I think the, the advent of kind of social media and online blogs and you maybe there is, you know, sometimes from time to time, there's some frustration that people can't get the, the, the timepiece from the big four brands, as you mentioned. But no, I think it's just a wider interest in, in timepieces in general. Uh, you know, they're, they're not just interested in one brand or one trophy timepiece. And that's just a, a change in the consumers. And it's, it's fantastic to see. So David, what can we expect to see from Watches of Switzerland in the second half of this year? New expansion markets, you mentioned Berlin, store openings, acquisitions, brand partners, anything new that we can that you can share? We are, you know, continuing to invest in uh, and uh, in new stores. Um, we've just opened up uh, a month ago so it, and in the American Dream project in uh, in New Jersey, right? We signed up. To, we signed up to several years ago, as you know, 
uh, naive foreigners, as soon as we heard it was called the American Dream, then we said, okay, we've got a sign. <laughs> and uh, the, uh, but, you know, we, we love the project. We love the, the, the family that are behind it and the same group that are uh, behind Mall of America and Edmonton Mall. And, and it's just, you know, it's, it's based around uh, entertainment, um, you know, that whole project. And I, I think it's going to be uh, really great. You know, the, um, and I, I see, you know, you see that in a lot of just the trends of, of retail that are out there, the other locations that we, you know, you mentioned the timeless acquisition that we did in, in, uh, in uh, Legacy West in Plano, Texas. That mall, again, is kind of an outdoor mall, but it's, it's based more around entertainment and restaurants than retail itself, you know, and it's kind of, that's what draws the people there. And then they, they choose to retail uh, again. So, you know, more stores, uh, the, the, the next store that we're looking to open up in, in probably the, the second half of our fiscal year here in the US or the, the next major store, we've got some mono brands that are opening up as well. But we're opening up in one Vanderbilt. I don't know if you know that building next to Grand Central. Yeah, right. So we're opening up, beautiful. we're opening right. up, a, we're opening up a Watches of Switzerland store there. Um, and so we're really excited about that. Some other projects that are going to be kind of opening up later uh, post that. Um, we are going to be opening up, um, though the timing still needs to be uh, confirmed. We're going to be opening up the, the largest uh, Rolex boutique in Europe in uh, in London. On Bond Street, we already run the retail, the Rolex boutique there, but uh, moving to a bigger uh, location. And then we've got some uh, some marketing plans that are in the offing as well. Some some really interesting stuff that uh can't talk about at the moment, but some, you know, kind of a, an update to the Anytime Anywhere project that we did. We're, we're shooting some of that stuff right now. I just came from one of the shoots yesterday and, and that's going to be really exciting. Maybe something a little bit different uh, in terms of our partnership with the brands again. So some fun stuff to come. David, my final question is the luxury item question, which I ask all my guests. So if you were stranded on a deserted island and you could only have one single luxury item with you, what would that luxury item be? It can't be any form of air or water transportation to get you off that island or anything that requires mobile service. So you can call somebody to get you off that island. It's just you, lots of sand, lots of palm trees, lots of ocean. What would that one single luxury item you would like to have with you? Well, I don't know if this is going to fit into the category, so you're going to have to let me know whether this fits in or not, but I'm a huge fan of uh, of, uh, of music. I've got... Um, um, I collect yeah, records. I've got the vinyl collection. Vinyl collection, like ten thousand records. Yep. Like. So I don't know if I, I don't know if I'd be allowed to bring my full vinyl collection and my turntables uh, and the turntable, but at least a turntable and some selection of vinyl. If I'd be able to have that, then that would that would probably keep me pretty happy. And if I had my whole vinyl collection, I'd be, I'd be, <laughs> I'd be very happy there, just flipping records uh, and and changing sides. Uh, every 20 minutes would work for me. David Hurley, Deputy CEO of Watchers of Switzerland. Thank you so much for joining me on The Luxury Item. Thank you very much, Scott. It's been a pleasure. That's it for this episode of The Luxury Item Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this useful and entertaining, I would be really grateful if you can share it with a friend or colleague. I would love it if you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. The Luxury Item Podcast is a production of Silvertone Consulting, 
I'm your host, Scott Kerr. Until next time.